Friends, at this time, I'd encourage you to take your Bible in hand. I'm checking the clock because today I have a message and I, I'm, I don't want to apologize in front. I don't want to discourage you that it might be a little longer than normal, but uh, I am going to move as quickly as I can today because I think it's an important message that we all need to hear. It's something literally that hits close to home. So if you're watching this at home, I'd encourage you to go into the kitchen and turn the oven down about 15, 25 degrees. It'll take a little longer to cook, but then you won't feel that uh, you have to turn off the end of the message today and get get after that meal. Uh, For those of you here, God bless you. Take your Bibles. We're going to begin and focus on a lot of the scriptures in the book of Genesis. We were there last week as we saw the story of a person under pressure. Uh, That was the story of Noah. Uh, Today, just keep your thumb in Genesis chapter 37. As I mentioned, Noah faced incredible pressure. We've been talking uh, between Easter and Pentecost season. We're talking about the faithful people in Scripture who faced difficulties and hardships in their life. As I said jokingly last week, I call it faithful in the fix. Uh, you know, the, the God's people under enormous pressure. And I don't think we should feel that we've done something wrong when we face difficulties in life. Because as I open my Bible, literally every person of faith you read about faces hardships, trials, and difficulties. Oftentimes, the difficulties we face are not the result of our faith, but they reveal our faith. They grow our faith and strengthen our faith in incredible ways. Scripture says that when you're undergoing trials and difficulties, don't think God has forgotten you, but be open to what he's doing in your life and how he's strengthening and growing you. Well, Noah last week, he seemed literally to have the world against him. One person, it seemed honored God and tried to walk close to God in his life when the world had turned to wickedness, sin, which is essentially selfishness, a selfish world. And that's society. Society isn't that much different today. It's all about self-interest. And everybody is trying to make a dollar off you by appealing to your self-interest. And we see how difficult that makes the world. Sometimes you feel so under pressure that the world literally, as the book of Romans says, is trying to squeeze you into its mold. You are under pressure in society. But it's not just the world out there. If you've lived any length of time in this world, you know some of the most painful things we go through can happen at home. Home and family, which are God's idea, his creation, created for us to be born into, to be raised in, to be loved and cared for, to be fed, clothed, sheltered, taught, nurtured, all of those wonderful things. Well, the enemies of our souls, which we've talked in the past, are Satan, this fallen world, and our sinful human nature, all of them conspire against that beautiful creation of God, home and family, to twist it and turn it and make it a source of pain rather than a fountain of our greatest joy. And so we look today at people who are struggling in their families at home. And we're honest That's all of us sometime. I want to begin with a beautiful little psalm, only three verses long. Psalm 133 is written as an ode, a tribute 
to unity in the family. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. When brothers are in unity, it's blessing, it's a source of life. But when the home becomes a source of pain, the old saying, home is where the heart is, is changed. All too often we can say home is where the hurt is. Rather than throwing out the welcome mat, sometimes you feel in your very family you don't fit in. Perhaps it's because you might be the only believer in Jesus in your family. And the others treat you as if you've taken leave of your senses. You don't feel as if you belong. Oh, there's so many things that can happen and cause hurt and pain in families. We can't touch on them all this morning, but we can learn important lessons from God's Word from the life and the family of one individual. Well, of course, if you've turned to Psalm, or Psalm rather, Genesis chapter 37, the individual becomes clear very quickly. It's not only the patriarch Jacob, but the sons of Jacob, one of the most difficult families. It was a family that was uh, dysfunctional, to use a modern word that almost doesn't even touch on how many problems this family has. The first point we want to make about when we look at this character today is that like father, not like son. Like father, not like son. And that's important for us today because friends, as we see in our families, as I've seen throughout my ministry, some of the worst difficulties we face in our families are generational. They're generational. There are generational sins, patterns of hurtful behavior that are taught and learned between one generation and the next. Uh, I could go into detail, but I won't because I keep confidences of families that I have pastored over the years where you see the same hurtful patterns, generation after generation. And the same problems arise from these uh, hurtful patterns, wrong behaviors, uh, generational sin even that moves from one to the other. When we look at the patriarchal families, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then all the sons of Jacob, we see not only faith being passed down because these are believing families. This is not something that's only the purview of unbelievers. Believing families have problems as well. These are not only believing people, But there are also people who make some profound mistakes in their parenting and in their family structures. When we see especially, uh, well, it begins with Abram and Abraham, the father of faith, where he uh, couldn't, didn't wait. They didn't wait for God's blessing of the, the promised child. And so he takes his wife's concubine, has a child. Eventually, uh, they're abandoned in the desert and God has to care for them. Uh, there's all sorts of issues surrounding that, which we even see today being played out in the Middle East between peoples descended from those, uh, uh, those patriarchal branches of the family so long ago. But then you get to Isaac and you see profound division in the family. Uh, one, one parent has 
one child and the other parent has the other child and they conspire against one another. And then uh, the one who we really see, his name itself means that he is one who is a cheater and will try to always deceive and trick somebody else. That's, that's basically what Jacob means, the heel grabber, the leg puller. Uh, not only does he deceive his father, steal his brother's birthright, uh, which starts a blood feud. He thinks he's going to be killed by his brother later. He has to flee the family. He goes to his uncle, and it starts all over again. Cycles of deception, and, and, and he thinks he's marrying one of Laban's daughters, Rachel, his true love, and, and his, uh, his uh, father-in-law tricked him. Uh, in the celebration, had too much to drink, wakes up. He's married to Sister Leah. And you know that story. It just goes on and on. He comes back, and there is a, there's a begrudging reunion with his brother, and uh, you think if anyone has learned the error of his ways, it will be Jacob, not to have a divided family. But what happens, you know the patriarchal stories. Along the way, trying to eventually marry his true love, Rachel, he winds up not with two wives, but also their maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpha. He winds up with four wives and 12 sons, which is a recipe for disaster. Oh, you will have to be an even-handed man to keep everybody happy and treated fairly. (laughs) But Jacob, now known as Israel, is not an even-handed man and has not learned the lessons of the past. So what hope is there for his sons? Well, leading up to this passage, we see not a whole lot. They are a rough bunch of people. Those sons of Jacob, they had more in common with a mafia family than they did a patriarchal family. Already two of the brothers, Simeon and Levi, have massacred all of the males in a city, killed every one of them because of an offense done to their sister Dinah. These are a bloody-minded, bloody-handed, rough bunch of people, these sons of Jacob. And then something happens. We see one, as Noah was different from the people around him, we see a person of integrity and honesty and fairness. Like father, but not like son. We pick up the story of Joseph the 11th out of 12 sons of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. Verse 2 says this. This is the generations of Jacob. In the NIV, it says this is the account of Jacob, but literally it's this is the generations of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilphah. And if you know the patriarchal parentage, you know the Bilhah Zilpha boys. That was uh, Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. I remember them because all their names have an ah sound in them. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, and Joseph were out tending the herds. These were enormously wealthy people with large herds of animals his father's wives. And he brought their father, this is Joseph, brought their father a bad report about them. At first, people look at this and they say, oh, such a little brother tattling on his older brothers. But later in this account, we see that this is not really what's happening because we see that Jacob, now known as Israel, was... He'd done it before, and he does it again in these in these these chapters. He sends Joseph to check in on his brothers and to bring him 
a report. Why would he do that? It was bound to cause friction between the brothers, knowing that one was coming from the father to bring the father reports. But I believe, as we see later as character, it's because Joseph was profoundly a man of integrity. <laughs> that not often used word, because integrity is a person who is honest through and through. What you see is what you get. They are the same on the inside as they are on the outside. In human experience, how often we have been disappointed when we find out somebody we look up to, perhaps it's a Bible teacher, perhaps it's a member of the family, perhaps it's a public figure, somebody lacks integrity, they're not who they seem to be. I don't know why we should be disappointed. All we have to do is look into our own hearts and realize that we always seek to put on a better public face than we find on the inside. But Joseph seemed to be honest through and through, and his father could trust his reports of what was really happening when the other boys, the sons of the family with the, with the herds, were out of sight and apparently thought they were out of mind. This man had integrity. Scripture speaks of integrity, Ephesians, or Proverbs rather, verse chapter 10, verse 9, we're told, the man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out, <laughs> the inside and outside, the public and the private. Your conscience, you on the inside knows what you're really like, and we need to as God's children have clear consciences, not guilty consciences, knowing that who we really are in our private moments doesn't line up with who God wants us to be and who people expect us to be. 1 Peter 3.16 says, Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Integrity is important, and we'll see not only this week in family dealings, but next week as well, it stands Joseph in good stead. He seems to suffer for integrity. In fact, friends, this is the only character we're looking at his story for two weeks because of all the people in Scripture you find, apart from Christ himself, you don't find a more godly, Christ-like character than Joseph, but you also don't find one who suffers as much. Apart from Job, it's Joseph. And I believe in this wicked world, those two are connected. We're going to look very quickly at three home records because the family life of Joseph serves as the bookends of his greater story because Joseph is the longest character study in the entire book of Genesis. The first of those home records is favoritism. We already mentioned it in the family. Uh, Jacob and Esau, the younger stole the older's birthright. Esau was daddy's boy, wanted, liked everything about that boy, a chip off the old block. Jacob, on the other hand, he hung out around the tents with the women. Maybe he was good at crafts. I don't know. But Esau was a hunter. He was a man's man. Jacob, on the other hand, he was a mama's boy. And we see favoritism and divisiveness in that patriarchal family. You think Jacob would have learned the lesson for all the heartache it caused him, but apparently he did not. Look again at Genesis chapter 37, verse 3. It says, Now Israel, which is the name that Jacob had after wrestling with the angel of the Lord, now Israel loved Joseph 
more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him, the famous coat of many colors. In fact, we don't know exactly what this robe was like. This word for richly ornamented robe is only used twice in scripture here speaking of the uh, robe given to joseph and in second samuel we see a similar robe being worn as one of the princesses in the royal family of saul wearing this robe so apparently this robe denoted station an office uh, royalty And what this basically is, it shows not only that this was the apple of daddy's eye, but you know what Jacob was really doing? He was saying, this is my chosen one. This is my heir. Not the firstborn, as would be expected, but 11 out of 12. Are you kidding me? But when you think about it, Joseph was the firstborn in Jacob's thinking. He was the firstborn of Rachel the beloved of the four wives of Jacob, the one that he initially had intended to marry before Laban tricked him into marrying Rachel's sister Leah. Leah, who had six of the 12 boys. Uh, Reuben might have been the firstborn and the heir of the family, but already at this time, that rough and tumble family, Reuben had already had an affair with one of the concubines of one of the wives of his father, so he was immediately disqualified. Jacob chose Joseph, and that favoritism wore on the brothers. What's favoritism? In essence, favoritism is unfair preference of one over the other. Sometimes it's based on something that people have no control over. That's when it's most unfair. When favoritism becomes partiality, it can take the form of classism, racism, sexism, all these isms, and we hate that in our hearts because we know it's based on essentially unfairness. It's not fair. It wasn't fair for him to choose one and laud one child and the other's just simmer in a slow burn. It just wasn't fair. Scripture tells us we shouldn't provoke our children. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, I have a quote from the English Standard Version uh, because the New International says, don't exasperate your children. Well, I exasperate my kids all the time. To me, that just sort of frustrate them and make them shake their head over you. And that's what they really should do toward dad because we're kind of old and goofy. But... The actual translation is, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Oh, they'll be upset with you, but let them be upset about the right things. That you're putting healthy limits on behavior. You're guiding them in godly paths. And they're not always going to like that. I love children. Boy, they can look mad at you. They can give you that death glare. It just puts a smile on my face. I don't want to see the kids mad, but I want to see them upset with me for the right reason. But it wasn't the way with Jacob's favoritism. Scripture's very clear. It says again and again and again that favoritism, partiality, isn't just bad parenting. It's a sin. 
because it's opposed to the nature of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 11, short verse, but it's important. Paul says, for God does not show favoritism. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews saying, yeah, we're the chosen people. We're the apple of God's eye. You Gentiles, yeah, you're like a wild branch grafted into our uh, the, the roots of Judaism, but really you're second class. And Paul says, no, not with God. There is no second class. God's completely fair. He is not partial. God does not show favorites. Remember when Jesus was being tested, they said, Rabbi, we have a question because we know you're not a respecter of men. You don't play games. You don't choose favorites because God is impartial. God is fair. Acts chapter 10, verse 34, then Peter began to speak after seeing the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentile people. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And it's so important to realize that almost the entire chapter, James chapter 2, James writes against favoritism. And this favoritism was being shown not just in the family of God, but they were showing favoritism to rich people, rich people who, who have so many things against them when it comes to faith. And were in so many ways the enemy of the faithful, they still were showing favoritism to rich rather than poor. And James says it comes down to love, God's love and ours. Verse 8 of James chapter 2, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Favoritism is sin. And yet, that's what we see. We see the brothers reading it as favoritism because it is, not only took root in them being frustrated with their father, provoked to anger, but it became the second of the great home wreckers. It became anger and hatred. Anger not just being upset in the moment, but it simmering in the heart and like acid eating away at the relationship until anger turns into hatred. Hatred in a family. This should be marked by love. But now we see this family, this believing family, split by hatred. Because what was the reaction of the other brothers seeing the coat of many colors gifted to their younger brother? Chapter 37, verse 4, we read, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. What an awful family life. How awful for the brothers to feel their father had rejected them. Because there's nothing the kids crave more than the love of their parents. Their parents think they're doing well. But to judge them and turn their back on them and choose one of the other children, they felt completely rejected. And I'm sure the hatred though it was focused on their younger brother Joseph, I'm sure it had its roots in their hatred for their father as well. You see how the family is being torn to shreds. And Jesus says, 
It's not what you do with your hands that God judges. It's the heart behind the hands. So if you think you can just be upset, be angry, maybe get away with hating someone on the inside, but you never say an unkind word about them like these boys were doing, Jesus says, think again. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made that very clear that God knows the heart. Verse 21 of Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is a Aramaic swear word that I'm not even sure what it means, but they don't translate it, which tells you enough is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is saying, morally, you've killed them. The same impulse that would cause you to pull the trigger on a gun is already there in the heart, and God sees it and judges it. It goes on to say in in 1 John, that that's exactly how God sees it. Morally, he equates it to murder. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, the apostle John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. God judges our hearts. And at the heart level, this family has been destroyed. They're a family in name only. We have favoritism, we have anger, we have hatred. And all of it carries on from day to day because of the green-eyed monster. The last homewrecker we see in this story is jealousy. Jealousy is malicious. Oh, jealousy you often hide behind a mask Uh, But it motivates you. It poisons you. And it's long-term. It's something that, though you think it's the other person you're jealous of, it's a problem on the inside. It's a heart issue for us. As we see, they had a lot to be jealous about. Because not only did their father seem to favor their brother overtly, but God, in a profound way, blessed Joseph. I think God, knowing in advance all the suffering he would endure, God gave him some abilities to see him through. And one of those was God gave him profound visions in dreams. Some people said Joseph shouldn't have told people the dreams. It seemed like he was bragging. But again, we're projecting ourselves into the story. If God gave you a vision and that dream was like no other dream you ever had, and it was a prophetic dream and it did all come true, you would be remiss and unfaithful to the vision if you did not share it. So we see beginning in verse 5 and for the next six verses, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? 
And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. And he told his brothers, listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Jealousy is malicious. It's ongoing. It's hurtful. It causes the whispering and the gossip and the character assassination. It's interesting. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 4 puts it this way. Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? Anger can be gone in a minute. You may say something you regret instantly. Fury, you're really upset and you blow your top. But you get over it. But jealousy, oh, that's a way of life. That's a character issue. And the Bible says, who can stand against a jealous person? Again, in James chapter 3, James chapter 3, we've already looked at James' teaching on favoritism, but in chapter 3, we read, but if you harbor bitter envy, and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice." James is talking about in the church, but as well, not only the family of God, but in our own families, jealousy is so destructive. It leads even to violence. And that's exactly, if you know the story, that's exactly what happens. We read a little further in Genesis chapter 37 that that, uh, Jacob sends his son on another one of those scouting missions, find the brothers, see what they're up to. I'm sure he just doesn't feel he can be disappointed in those other guys any more than he already is. But he sends Joseph, and Joseph is an obedient son, and he goes looking from them in one place to another, and finally he sees his brothers in the distance. And it says in Genesis 37, beginning in verse 14, as he finds them. It says, a little further down, verse 19 is where I'll pick it up. As the brothers see Joseph coming in the distance, we read, Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. This is the end result of jealousy. Every evil practice is included in jealousy, is what James says. And we see it played out here. Murder itself. Now, if you know the story, we're not going to go into detail because of time this morning, that of those brothers, of the, of the ten brothers in the field, the oldest, Reuben, 
Even with all of his mistakes he made, he'd lived long enough to know that they needed to draw a line. They could hate their brother, but they couldn't murder him and have his blood on their hands. And so he says, well, let's just throw him in this pit, this cistern that he can't get out of and let him die of natural causes. Then his blood won't be on our hands. We won't have shed his blood and we won't be judged by God or our father. And it says that Reuben was planning to come back later and rescue his brother and take him back to the father's camp. But you know the story. He never made it back. While Reuben was gone before he could come back, Midianite caravan comes by, and they ruthlessly sell their brother into slavery. Well, these are the bookends of the story. 20 years later, after incredible suffering and amazing things have been happening in Egypt where Joseph was taken, They meet again. The family comes back into contact. Now, it's incredible to me when I see any family break a pattern of unhealthy and destructive behavior. How do you do that? It's difficult. But when you read this passage, you realize that God took extreme measures. He took Joseph out of that situation that hatred, that jealousy, that unhealthy pattern, and he took him all the way to Egypt to break the pattern. And it is well and truly broken. But after spending our time with all these all-too-familiar home wreckers, who can heal our homes? Well, friends, there is hope. Because that which heals your heart and your home is so much greater than that which seeks to destroy it. The home healers basically are this, love and forgiveness. Love and forgiveness. Oh, this is something we crave. This is something we need. This is food and drink to the soul is love and forgiveness. (laughs) Well, we're going to look next week at those 20 years in between. But just briefly skip ahead with me 20 years. Genesis chapter 45. Joseph is now, in all practicality, the most powerful man in the world. The pharaoh of the most powerful nation of Egypt has given all his authority into the hands of Joseph. He now runs the country. And who comes during a time of famine begging for food? (laughs) the brothers of Joseph. Oh, if this was you or I, 20 years of revenge fantasies would all come true. You have them right where you want them. But the man of integrity who had grown and deepened through suffering, what he gave is what he would want. He gave forgiveness. He gave forgiveness. We won't go into detail of all of the things that happened in their earlier encounters, but finally in speaking to his brothers who didn't recognize him because before them they saw a powerful Egyptian by his language, by his hair, by his clothing, by the makeup they wore. They saw a man. The Egyptians portrayed their leaders as living gods. That's what they saw on the throne of Egypt in front of them, but it was just their younger brother Joseph. And finally, he couldn't carry the charade on any longer because it broke his heart. And he gave them what he would want from them. 
It says in verse 45, the first three verses, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? His brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. It was as if a ghost had come back, but not a weak, insubstantial ghost, but a powerful, avenging spirit. And they were terrified because they knew what their deeds and thoughts and actions deserved. But he didn't give it to them. He gave them grace, what they did not deserve. Verse 14, further down, Genesis 45 says, Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Finally, they could speak again. When they knew their death sentence had been commuted. They'd been forgiven. Oh, the story of Joseph is so Christ-like. We see such parallels and foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus, who gave us not what we deserved, but exactly what we needed. How could Joseph do it? He's just a man. It was love. Love led to forgiveness. Scripture says that love has a special power. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, we read, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. Peter quotes this in 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Pastors have often asked, what does that mean, love recovers up? Is it like you lift the carpet and sweep all the sins under it? Or you, or you do a cover-up? One, one of the commentators I've always enjoyed, Warren Wearsby, he said, this teaches that Christians should keep the sins of other Christians secret so non-Christians won't be disappointed. A cover-up? I don't think so. I don't think so. I believe the covering spoken here is one that they were familiar with in the Old Testament as well as the New. On the Day of Atonement, is this if the sins of the people were laid before God and blood was spread over the mercy seat to cover and atone for their sins. Jesus took your sins to the cross and His blood covers them. Though they be as scarlet, in Christ you're white as snow. Those sins have been atoned for. And love connects into that profound, forgiving grace of God. All sin is punished. But in God's grace, all sin can be forgiven. And that love of God exhibited through the heart of Joseph forgave his brothers. 
covered up those past sins. He let them go. Never trust somebody says, well, I can forgive, but I can never forget. (laughs) That's not what God says. God says, I cast them away. I remember them no more. And Joseph chose as an act of will, and that's what love is. It's an act of will to let go of the past and forgive. Oh, how many family problems would end today if we just let go and forgive based on the love that we have received. That love it's described so beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. God's love, which we seek to share with others. Beginning in verse 4, we're told that love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. A better description of our homes and families, by God's grace, you will not find. They need to be based and rooted in God's love. We need to forgive based on that love as we've received forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 The Apostle Paul reminds us, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, telling them about the Lord's Prayer, which seems so offensive to them, that line, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus said, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That truth is repeated in Scripture again and again and again. When you harbor hatred and unforgiveness, you've built a wall against God's forgiveness. You're unable to receive it. Friends, life's too short for that. We have struggles in our families. Whatever role we play in them, maybe we're provoking, causing offense. We've got to quit it. Maybe we're harboring past hurts close to our heart. Maybe we're jealous. We've got to let them go. There was a man named Philip Brooks. He's known, not only was he a great pastor of uh, Trinity, the Trinity Church in Boston, a famous historical church, but he was actually the man who wrote our beloved Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I want to finish with a quote from him. This pastor once said, Forgive, forget, bear with the faults of others as you would have them bear with yours. Be patient and understanding. Life is too short to be vengeful or malicious. Let it go. By God's grace, we can. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, the story of Joseph, it's profound, it's incredible, but in many ways, it's our story as well. Lord, you know our families, there's none perfect. We all have problems. 
Those problems are rooted in selfishness and sin, jealousy, envy, anger, disagreements, unforgiveness, fractured relationships. Lord, as far as it depends on us, Lord, may your love soften our hearts. May we let go of grievances. May we forgive as we have been forgiven. Because, Lord, life's too short to live in anger, hatred, vengeance, revenge, maliciousness that has no place in our hearts or in our homes. Thank you for Jesus who forgave us. May we share his forgiveness with others and may it start at home. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you and keep you.